But let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, uh, 1 through 13. We're going to be, and this is uh, the famous love text. The, the chapter Paul writes about love. And I'm going to read all of chapter 13, which is just 13 verses. Some of you, this will be very familiar to, as you've heard it often at weddings. But the context here, again, is spiritual gifts as we've been covering as a body. This is what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. I want to invite you to pray. As we come to God's word, we often pray and say, God, I want you to speak. I don't want to hear him. I want to hear your spirit speak through him. And I would ask you especially to pray today that you would be a more loving person the way that God wants you to. You pray, and I will pray for us collectively as a body, and then we'll dive in here. Father, we do thank you for your word. Father, I I know this passage is familiar to many, and I, I pray that we would understand it maybe in a new way today, in the context in which you've written, that you would deepen our love for one another, especially in this church body. Help us understand love better. Help us to understand the word, the action. Help us understand your love for us in Christ more deeply. May we truly understand that so that we can display it to others. And is that, that's our, our desire today. That's my desire for myself and for us together. Moved by the power of your spirit, we pray. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said. So as I planned uh, the series, I kind of lined up this text to fit nicely in line with this weekend, which was Valentine's Day, right? Our culture celebrates Valentine's Day and love, and I think we would all agree, if we're just being honest, that we get a mess made of this definition of love. We don't really understand it all the time. We don't practice it by the way we, we enjoy it with culture. And there's, you know, stuff out in display at Walgreens, Walmart, you name it. What, like back before Christmas, it seems, in this commercialization of love. And, and it's sung about and we 
I don't have near the time afforded to just shout out love song names, of which you could probably think of 20, right? But most of the love that's talked about in culture is not the kind of love that Paul is writing about here in agape love. And so I want to understand it better. Now, if you had come in this morning, you saw the little card on your seat. And uh, I want you to take that out right now. And I want to start here because we're going to revisit this later. There's a pen in front of you in those seat back pockets. Maybe you can borrow one from a friend. But I really want to concentrate on this question. And, and as we seek to prepare our hearts for what this text, I hope, would do in our life, I want you to take some time briefly to think about these question, this question in these four areas. When it comes to love and relationships, who do I have the most difficulty loving right now? I'm going to give you some time to think about that. I broke it up into four categories, and I'd love you to put one name in each of those four categories. Who do I have the most difficult time loving in my family? That could be immediate family. That's my nuclear family or extended family, siblings, parents, brothers, sisters. Write their name down. If you need room for more, you may. Just write down one name in each of those categories. Who in my church family do I have the most difficulty loving right now? Let's not be shy about that. Hopefully it's not your neighbor right next to you. But if it is, write their name down. Just turn away from them and cover your hand so they don't see. Who in my friend circle, my neighbor circle, kind of a broader category, do I have the most difficulty loving right now? And the last one there, and I'll have to explain this a little bit, who in my world do I have the most difficulty loving? And here's what I mean by that. Is it, and I, and I don't mean a joke of this, is it Democrats that just irk me? Is it Republicans? Is it people of a different color? Is it people of a different gender? Is it people who say they struggle with gender-specific things? Or is it homosexuals? Is it whatever that is? Who are the people that I find it most difficult to love? Write their name or that category in. I want to talk about this today, but uh, you'll see that prayer at the bottom. We'll get to that in a second. I want you to hold that card. Maybe you could fold it up and just hold it as we journey through this together. I want to tell you a story as you may be thinking about writing some names down. I asked my wife for permission to tell this story. She never got back to me, so... I'm going to tell the story. Uh, she's sitting back there. Um, uh, I, I, I've been waiting to tell this story for a really long time, but it was just too soon, and now I feel like it's the right time. Um, several years ago, we were traveling, and we do road trips, and we uh, have vacation with my parents down in the south. That's where we just were in Florida. And part of that vacation is we usually stop at a hotel somewhere in the middle of that. Um, through the years, we've tried to do it all in one shot for various reasons, which I'm about to unpack. Um, but my wife does not like hotels. She's unapologetic about that. And she really doesn't like hotels for one specific reason. She does not like the idea of bed bugs. Bed bugs are uh, a problem in hotels often. And so I've always tried to get a little bit nicer hotel, although sometimes it doesn't matter what the quality is. And so I've always just been like, honey, just it's fine. Like, we go to these places, they're clean, we have to do all this stuff, like, like scan the room and all this stuff, and uh, whatever, I'm, I'm going to stop right there. Um, but um, you don't need all the details of the story. This particular night, we were in Paducah, Kentucky. So if you're from Paducah, 
Not very proud of your city. Um, and, and you got to know me, too. I sleep really heavy. So, like, I, when I'm down, I'm out for the count. And my wife's greatest fear became a reality at about 1, 2 in the morning. And she wakes me up out of a slumber. I don't know how long she took, but she was holding a Ziploc bag. And you know what was in it? I know. Candy. No, I'm just kidding. It was a bed bug. There was a bed bug in it. And she wakes me up, and I'm just waking up. I'm like, and she's like, do you know what this is? And I'm like, I don't really care. And she shows me this thing. What ensued from that moment was complete chaos. Everybody had to jump in the shower. We were out of that hotel. We went to the desk. I could tell you stories upon stories. I don't have time for like all the details that happened in that. But we left in the middle of the night and headed back home. We're going to stay there any longer. What we found out later, it was two bed bugs total that were what they called hitchhiker bed bugs. It wasn't infested. They did their thing in the room, but these had gotten in there. But when we got home, oh, this is where the story starts. All right. So we get home and, and we, none of us can go in the house because you know if those things come in the house with you, you're in trouble. And so we're in the car and it's kind of like, everybody take all your clothes off. And, and we're, we're going in the house, and all the bags stay, and we're not bringing anything in. And we're all going in the house because we did not want these things in our house because if you've ever had them, you know how hard they are to get rid of. And so we put all the stuff in plastic bags. And this is a funny part of the story that I have to share. Uh, we had stuff in plastic bags forever, and it was in the summer. So we had, we had read that like heat would kill these things, but really, really only hot heat. So black garbage bags. My wife, for weeks at a time, would bring this stuff out to our patio, baking in the sun. Bags, like lumpy bags. Our neighbors had to wonder. Like, <laughs> some, ever seen the movie The Burbs? Like, what's going on there? Here's my point in saying all this, and if you find me later, I can fill in all the holes of the story. We worked terribly hard to keep those bed bugs out of our house. And I wondered about that today, and I wondered how hard we worked to keep the malice and unloving attitudes out of our heart towards others. Do we take the same care of our hearts when it comes to loving others that we took trying to get all this stuff from spreading in our house, do we take the same care when it comes to the people that we wrote down on, those, on that card? Do I, do I work hard at saying, God, don't, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to have malice. I don't want to have resentment. I don't want to have irritability. All those things that I just read from 1 Corinthians, I don't want any of that in my heart regarding others. And I wonder if we care in that way. You see, Paul writes in the context of this passage, he's writing about spiritual gifts, and he's writing here about agape love. Now, we know there's three types of love, or maybe you don't know, but there are three types of love in the scriptures, or thoughts of Greek love. Eros, it's more of the erotic love, or the romantic love, that is generally celebrated in the culture. That's what our culture thinks is love. And then there's phileo love, which is a brotherly kind of brotherhood love, which, by the way, Eros isn't even mentioned in the New Testament. And then there's phileo love. Paul is writing about agape love, true love of God in the deepest sense of the word. And this is the kind of love that seeks the highest good of the other person, even at the price of one's own comfort, safety, and benefit. I'll leave that up there for a second. That's agape love. 
the kind of love that seeks the highest good of the other person, the person you wrote down. It doesn't matter what they've done, why they make you upset, why you struggle to love them. It seeks the highest good of that person, even at the price of your own comfort, safety, and benefit. That's what agape love is. That's what Paul was talking about. That's the characteristic in God that doesn't make it conditional. It's the characteristic of Christ. It's the characteristic that God wants to infuse into the believer's being so that they would know how Jesus has loved us and then show that to the world. This agape love, meaning love not, in, not for one's own benefit, reminds me of Philippians 2.3. This verse that we look at often, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. That's a great verse in the Bible about loving someone else. And you stop and say, yeah, well, Pastor Craig, you don't really know who I wrote down. You don't know the story, the context. You don't know what they've done. It doesn't matter. We're not called to understand all that stuff. We're, all, we're called to obey Philippians 2.3. Now, Paul's writing, remember, the context spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13. It's not, it's not bad that you have that at your house framed in a little frame, 1 Corinthians 13, and it's read at weddings. It's not bad, but the context is key here. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth because they had division and malice and hatred and envy in the body. That's why he wrote this. That's why the Spirit led him to pen this. There was division. There was, there was fractures. There was people that didn't like each other. There was people that were jealous of each other. There was people that resented others. There was people on that card that you wrote down their name that you were not loving. And he said, enough of it. You have to understand. There was those who thought they were superior. Those were those who thought they had more important gifts. And Paul wants them to know one thing. It doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter what you think you have. Everything minus love equals nothing. Everything minus love equals nothing. And I want to make three points this morning, really simple points. I'm not going to spend uh, equal time to each of these points, but I want to just make the three points based on each of those words. I want to just look at one of those words. Everything minus love equals nothing. And the first one is the word nothing. Verses one through three. We must, in order to love, become nothing. Paul's main point in verses 1 through 3, there as we read, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, the gift of prophecy, right, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith, faith even so powerful as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I Deliver up my body and martyrdom, right, to be burned, but, have enough, but, but not have love, I gain nothing. His point, even to the church, Corinthian church, even if by appearance all the works that were displayed were miraculous, astonishing, extreme, these are spiritual people, right? And ultim they ultimately amount to nothing without agape love. You see, the Corinthians, listen to this, the Corinthians thought they could rely on their status status and knowledge and gifting, and yet they had so many deep bedbug-type penetrating problems in the church that they weren't loving each other. And so Paul addresses it. Notice the word all in those three verses. What is Paul doing there? He's saying, if I had all this and all knowledge, now that's absurd line of thinking. Paul knows better than that to know that only Jesus Christ would have ever been able to fill that category and so he's rhetorically saying, if all, 
all of this was mine, if I really knew everything, if I really had the capacity to give everything, which makes his point more profound, even if one could be all, more impressive, right? Yet with it, without love, it wouldn't even matter. If you had so much faith that a mountain would move physically, move on the earth, it wouldn't even matter. You and I, we've seen people that are spiritual, and we've seen impressive things and impressive giftings. And Paul is saying, it doesn't even matter if they don't have and understand love. He says it, everything minus love equals nothing. In order to truly love, we must become nothing. We have to lay ourselves aside in a Philippians 2 way and say, God, I just have to understand that I don't know all things. I don't see all things. It doesn't matter what kind of impressive things I can do. If I don't learn in my heart to love each other, to love the body, none of that actually matters. Everything minus love equals nothing. That's the first point. The second one is this. We must understand understand and demonstrate love. That's verses four through seven, the popular list, right? The famous list of what love is. And again, I would say it's not exhaustive. Paul was addressing very specific problems in the church of what love is and what love isn't. And so I'm not going to read those again. I just want to put the slide up, the list. He says positive aspects of love in the list are these things. Love is patient. Love is kind. It rejoices with truth. It bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things. And you'll notice there's more on the negative side, which Paul is addressing a lot of negative behavior. He says, love doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. We'll talk about that quite a bit. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. And it does not rejoice at wrongdoing. I'm going to leave that list up for a second. And he addresses rather the negatives. Why? Because again, those are the areas that the Corinthian church was struggling with. So hopefully you'll understand the context. Paul, in the context of spiritual gifts, sees the church being divided over elevating gifts, looking down on others, other people being envious of those things. And he says, you as a body of Christ do not even understand agape love when you act like that. They had allowed arrogance and rudeness and boasting and celebration of sin, all kinds of sin, which we've covered in 1 Corinthians, jealousy and selfishness to actually flourish in the body. Nobody put that in a garbage bag and took it outside to get rid of it. They allowed it to grow and infest itself in the church. You see, here's the thing. The the Corinthian church was a church that had plenty of money. It had an enviable location where it was in terms of secular market and interaction and trade, had countless spiritual gifts that existed, and it had a legacy of celebrity teachers. Paul, Apollos, right? We know that. Yet they lacked the one thing they most needed, love. And and friends, this is really important to me because as I think about our church body, myself included, that's that's the area that I, we could get a lot of other things right in ministry. But if this church is not a loving church, Like, God help us all. And the Corinthian church was not operating out of that. Remember, everything minus love equals nothing. They were so infatuated with the things they had, they forgot to actually love people the way that Jesus loved. That's the reminder. That the only, only rather, the powerful fruit of the Spirit, like we covered this morning in our Sunday school hour, love can transform the body of Christ and build it up. Gifts couldn't do it. Knowledge couldn't do it. Prophecy couldn't do it. Only love 
was going to do that, the love of Christ. And I don't have to, time to cover the whole list in great detail, but I want to just go through that list in practical detail to just give you a couple examples so you can think about them. Patience. Love takes time, does it not? Not everything's going to happen overnight in a relationship with that person that you wrote down. There are things that drive you nuts about someone, likely the list that you wrote, there are things that drive you nuts about that particular person. Patterns, behaviors. Will you be patient for the sake of Christ? Kindness. There's a gentleness and tactfulness to love that is necessary. And I think that word tactful, when I think of love being kind, are you tactful when you approach people or you just bark at them and the same old argument comes up into play? Are you grumbling all the time and negative about this person? Think about that. Love is also rejoicing with truth. It celebrates a common good. And in the body of Christ, it is the gospel that unites us. And Paul says, this is what love does. It comes around and rejoices in the truth of the gospel. It celebrates that and elevates it higher than anything else that would be personal. It bears all things. Friends, you actually need to take on others' imperfections in order to love. The list that you wrote down, you actually need to take on some of those and bear with that person and some of their imperfections because you have them too. To overlook some of those things that drive you crazy. And then it believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I put all these together. This is the agreement that you make with yourself that you are going to see the big picture and go the long haul with others. This is what true love is in those relationships. I'm going to believe the best. I'm going to hope that God could restore as far as I'm concerned, Romans 15, 13, 15, right? Like I, I'll be at peace with everybody and I'm just going to endure with them for the sake of the gospel. Now Paul mentions the negative ones. Remember context here. It doesn't envy. I've mentioned they were jealous of each other's gift. This fleshes itself out in relationships all the time. As you look at others and say, oh man, like I wish I, wish I was like them or I wish I had that or this. It doesn't boast. Others were flaunting what they had in arrogance, right? That's the thing that really bothers us about maybe some of those names that we wrote down. People's arrogance and oh, like it's just disgusting to us. Love is not rude. This one's pretty obvious that when it's void of the Spirit and all the fruit of the Spirit, it's not love. It is not insistent. I'll come back to this one because this one, I believe, is of all the ones in the list for our culture is the most damaging to the church, the fact that we have to be right about things. It is not resentful. This is the malice that ends up forming when you let all that other yuckiness build up. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you keep the list with people. Some of us are list makers. Well, they did this, and then they did this, and then they did this. Even if there's forgiveness that maybe happened along the way, you don't forget, so you add it to the list. You said that's just what they do. Or the classic marital line, you know, you always. That's what that's talking about. Somebody's laughing because they know. And the person next to them, their spouse says, yeah, she would laugh at that because... And it also does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Friends, this is the exposing. This is what we do. This is when we expose all the sinfulness of others and rehearse them in our heart. Constantly focusing on all the bad things they do that that person just drives me crazy. And oh man, I hate it when they do this. And we march around the house. I hate it when they do this. And oh, I would love to give him a piece of my mind. My mom says, if I don't want to talk to him about anything nice, I shouldn't talk to him at all. And oh, I hate him. I hate him. That's the malice. 
that rejoices in wrongdoing, you are actually being part of celebrating sin when you do that. Satan loves that when we do that. When we march around in our little square in the house and we're so annoyed with this person, he loves that because if he could set that in your heart, he could put a wedge in relationships. I wanted to highlight this one as a standalone on being right, insistent, because I really feel like this is a problem in the church culture that we have gotten so hard-hearted and self-righteous that we convince ourselves that we don't need to reconcile and forgive and apology or apologize and make right. What do we want said of us when we die? Do we want it to be said of us that we were loving or that we had to be right? And you know what I'm talking about. And this exists in me too. This is a huge problem in our culture. And the only thing I could think about was looking to Jesus in the Gospels. And I was studying this week and I was thinking, like, how profound is this? Then Jesus is about to go to the cross in John. You see all red letters from chapter 13 on to 17. He's about to go to the cross and he could have taught them anything. He teaches them one last lesson, right? He could have taught them how to preach the gospel more effectively. He could have taught them evangelism tactics. He could have taught them more knowledge on a particular theological thing. He could have taught them how to hold fast to the word. He could have taught them how to handle the poor. He could have taught them how to combat spiritual attacks. He could have taught them more on prayer. He could have taught them how to be more generous. He could have taught church planning 101 and 201 and 301 and 401 and master's levels classes. You can see what I did there? Master level classes. He could have taught them how to heal the sick, how to get rid of demons, and what does he pick? Isn't it profound? He picks love. He serves the disciples. Listen to this. The high king of heaven comes into the upper room. The most wise, famous, all-powerful God-man, the one Paul was writing about, by the way, all things possessed by him, never sins, never makes a mistake, doesn't even exemplify any of the people on the list that you wrote down, never was unloving, never thought a bad thought, gets down on his hands and knees and washes their nasty feet of all the dirt and grime and sinfulness. A lowly servant's job. And then he teaches them what true love is and says, go and do it. That's the one thing. Look at this, John 13, 14, and 15. He says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. A new commandment later in 34, I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, by this, this action of love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus could have taught them anything he wanted. And he has one lesson, and he teaches them about love. And then he adds something really profound to it. He says, this is going to be the marker of your allegiance to me. This is going to be the thing that, that if you do it, people will know if you belong to me or not. This is not about what church you go to or what box you check on your political forms or what little checkbox you check when it says at the hospital when you're admitted there, like what religion or faith background are you. This isn't anything like that. This is about loving people. This is how people will be able to tell if you belong to Jesus or not. If you do this, people will say they, 
that, that's not normal. That's countercultural. That's counterintuitive. That's counteremotional. Like, they must belong to someone different. That's how people will tell. And friends, we don't get that right a lot of the time. We don't get that right in our, our platforms of speech and our culture. We don't get that right on social media, and I'm going to say it again. And I'm going to say it because I engaged in a debate this week with, in a way that I shouldn't have. And, and, we, and I did it out of wanting to try to show and reveal divisiveness, but it's, it's not a platform for conversation. The reason why I think that this divides in our culture is because we have an ability in technology to say whatever we want, most of which we would never say in front of someone's face. And our political divisiveness is very clear. I think we recognize that. And our attitudes about theological things are very clear. And we need to be right. Sometimes I think most Christians would get in a debate and shouting match with Jesus if he was on the other end. Just because we have the need to be right and unloving. Sometimes I actually think that. Like, even in my own life, I would argue with Jesus over this. Think of how absurd that is because we have to be right in our opinions. And we have to truth them, right? We talk about that. Love and truth, grace and truth, but we, we got to truth them to death. When I started diving into this, I wondered about one specific person as I've read the letter, and I'll share some verses. I wondered, what was Peter's takeaway? I didn't wonder about John's. John wrote that. I wondered what, he was Ephesus pastor, and he wouldn't go on to like, John was the old pastor in church in Ephesus, love one another, love one another. But I wondered what was Peter, because Peter seems a little more like me. He seems a little more like, I don't know, truth people. What did Peter take away from this? This week as I was studying, I was so just struck by some of the events that happened to me personally and how, how we can be as believers. And I just sat down and I opened up First Peter as a letter and I was amazed again the content. Here's the brief flyover of Peter's response, I think, to that. First Peter 1.22. He says, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. How do we get that? No impurities. From the Holy Spirit being cleansed by the word, this daily walk of repentance and faith. He goes to say in chapter 2, 1 Peter 2.1, So put away all malice. All the bedbugs, my insert, all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter's saying, here's, here's all that you need to just get rid of. Do heart, heart, heart work, getting rid of all this stuff as it relates to other people. In chapter 2, verse 17, this is what he says. Think about this in the context of our cultural, political divide. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Why, why would he say that? several thousand years ago. Did he know what the status of America would look like? I don't know. The Bible is relevant for all time, right? This is what he says. Honor everyone. Do we do that? Love the brotherhood. Do we do that? Fear God. Should we do that? Honor the emperor. Do we all do that? He says this in chapter 3, verse 8, 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Rejoice, right? In the truth, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. From Jesus' lesson, I think he's gleaning all of these things. 1 Peter 4, 7, he says this, and this is the scary one, I think. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, here's your response. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
What? Why? For the sake of your prayers? Above all, what's the last part there? I don't know if I have it on here. Because love covers a multitude of sins. That's the last part. I didn't have it on the screen. That famous verse, because love covers a multitude of sins. So Peter says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. What? You mean that if I just love rather than argue? If I know someone is dead wrong. Wait, that's what you're saying? If someone is dead wrong, but if I love them before I even get on social media with the shouting match, I could by that action cover sin? How does that even work? That if you choose love, you could actually cover sin. How does that even work? Let me tell you how that works. I'm so glad you asked. Number one, Jesus alone covers sin. The gospel is clear. Only his blood can atone. That perfect love, him laying down his life for us. No greater love, the Bible says. And two, there is a way that when we love, it's not that the sins of others are paid for. So don't make that mistake. When you love others, that doesn't atone for someone's sin. It's just as if they see the grace and love of Christ in you that matters more than when they're wrong or you're right. Does it make sense? When you love in that way, it doesn't pay for sin. It just shows the gospel to others. When you say, you know what? We might differ on this, but I am not going to stand my ground on that in order to prove you wrong. I am going to extend the grace that God extended me in Christ. I want you to know that love as I have known that love. Remember, it's a marker an authentic marker of our discipleship. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I, wanna, I want you to love and cover the sin rather than having to expose it all the time. And it's not that we don't need to expose sin from time to time and bring that up. But he says, here, it's like, you know, I could give you the list of all the things wrong with you. And you could look at the names on that, that sheet that you have. And I could just, you could go down. It'd be easy for you to do. I could give, I give you the list of all the things of why I don't love you. I could give you that. But you know what? Instead, I'm going to show you Jesus in me instead. I'm willing to overlook that for the sake of our relationship, knowing, and here's the catch, knowing that each one is accountable to God. You don't have to worry about them. God is going to judge them. So I'm putting that in any category. And I can't change their heart, Right? So think about that when you have relationships. I don't need to do the list thing with them. God's going to take care of that in their heart, and I can't actually change their heart anyway. What I can do is participate in more fracture, but can I trust God with them? I, I mentioned that I got in an argument with somebody this week because I thought they were, they were wrong. I thought they were really wrong in their behavior, and I thought it was sinful, and I tried to point that out in the most loving, gentle, pastoral way I could, and I really did. And you know what? It backfired. It did. And I felt a hardness of heart in this person. I, I was careful not to judge, but I felt a hardness of heart. And you know what? At the end of it all, what I did, at the end of all of this, what I felt like I just needed to do, I just apologized. And I'm not standing up here and saying I got this right, and so look at me. I'm saying this time I got it right. A lot of times I did and I just apologized and said, you know what? I shouldn't have mentioned anything. I'm sorry if I hurt you, and I love you. And I felt like what was in me in that moment was a need to be heard and right and to show them, and instead the whole thing blew up. And I said, you know what? I can't change this person. 
But what I can do is demonstrate either unloving behavior or loving behavior. And the only thing I have control of, self-control, is love. And I told him, I love you. I don't, want to be, I don't want this to be the thing that would kill our relationship forever. And it wasn't easy. And I can be a prideful person. And so it was humbling. And some would argue, even myself. I had a little argument with myself. Should I have really done that? Everything minus love equals nothing. That was a long second point. Here's the third. I'll try to keep this brief. We don't know everything. Paul uses two examples at the end here in verses 8 through 13. Look at this. He adds one thing to the list, one characteristic, and he says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, oh, do we long for that, the partial will pass away. And then he uses two examples. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul adds one characteristic to the, the love thing, says love never ends. It's the thing that will outlast all the other things. Friends, the gifts that they held so dear would fade away in time. They only knew in part the things that you and I argue about need to be right about. Those will fade away. Until Christ returns, our present world will always be characterized by partial knowledge and partial prophecy, sufficient to live a life of faith, hope, and love, yes, but far from perfect and complete. And the Apostle John contrasted our current condition with this future clarity. Look at 1 John 3, 2. This is what he says in this way. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John knew about that, right? He knew this isn't all there is, all the stuff that I think one day the perfect will come. We don't get it now, but one day when Christ returns, this is what will happen. Even the Old Testament prophesies of this. Isaiah eleven nine: They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth one day shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One day everyone will know God in his fullness. Jeremiah 11, 31, 34 says it this way. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. One day, that true perfect is coming, the thing that we all long for, and we're stuck in this mess of relationships and unloving and and loving relationships, and hurt, and all the, the hostility and malice. And Paul says prophecy is going to cease, tongues will cease, knowledge will cease. And then he uses these two examples to illustrate it. First, the child. He illustrates the truth of a mature condition by looking at how children act. What are children? They're adorable, but they're super immature. They see things in a simple way, in an immature way. They reason like a child. You know what I'm talking about when you're trying to get them to eat the dinner and they're like, oh, I'm not, I don't like that. Like, how can I persuade? They just reason like a child. They're ignorant. And what happens when you grow into maturity? Finally, you look back. And most of us, or I hope so, most of us look back and go, man, I was really dumb back then. And as we grow older, we look back and we see, I was really immature. And maybe even spiritual growth, we say, I can't believe I used to argue about that stuff. That's the perspective Paul is saying. You look back and you see you were just like a child when it came to loving. 
and you've grown in that, and you look back, and Paul says, that's how I want you to respond. The opinions we held, the things we fought about, the issues which, which, with which we are so dogmatic, these things will be replaced one day with full knowledge and understanding, and it'll only come when Christ returns there in verse 11. And then he uses a mirror in verse 12, like looking through a mirror dimly. You see, the ancient mirrors were not, like first century mirrors, were not like the ones we have. They were burnished bronze. They were a lot harder to reflect. We have mirrors like you almost look, and you know because you look in it every morning and you go, wow, that's a little too clear. That's how I look at it anyway. You're like, ooh. You kind of wish him for one of those. But Paul uses that as an example of seeing dimly. You don't see everything. You see, we only see things now as believers only a little better than Moses did. And I know that's hard to believe. Yes, we have Christ. Yes, our eyes have been opened to salvation fully. Yes, we don't live under the law. Yes, we understand what Jesus did by his grace, but we don't know everything. We don't know it fully. We still have things in the Bible. We're not exactly sure what it says. We still have questions. We have truth and conviction, but we also have to be humble in that. And Paul's saying, that's what it's like. You don't know everything, church. So you don't get to elevate your spiritual gifts and say for sure that they're better or higher and then be unloving to your neighbor. You don't get to be in a theological debate just because you think you're smarter and win it because it's more important. You don't get to be right about your political stance because you know everything about politics and our founding fathers and how God wants it to be and how God all wants it. You just don't know it. He says you don't know everything. But when you see the, the Savior face to face, do you know that all your questions turn to exclamation points? All those things we wondered about? And so Paul closes with verse 13. Three good things. He says faith. That's good. Hope pushes us forward and love. But if it's a contest, the greatest thing that we can be is not faithful. The greatest thing that we can be is not hopeful. All those, those are two really important things. The greatest thing we could be is loving. I love how William Barclay says it this way. Faith without love is cold. And hope without love is grim. Love is the fire which kindles faith. And it is the light which turns hope into certainty. Friends, we need to be people that love because everything minus love equals nothing. I need to wrap this up, but I'm going to ask you four questions. And then I just want to just spend a brief time in confession and reflection Here's my questions for you to walk away with. Do you consider love essential to your life and ministry? Think about that. Do I consider love essential to my life and ministry? Here's second. Do you demonstrate it often as your default? And it's not our default often in our flesh, but do you try to demonstrate love and say, that's my aim, that's my highest thing. As much as I can do, I want to show love to others. Number three, does your love fade in and out? Is it conditional? There's a really good way to gauge that. Do you only love when you receive? Is that the nature and status of your heart? Some of us, that's really easy. When we, we only can love if we're being loved. And the Bible, the gospel tells us otherwise. And the fourth one, does love come to the surface of your life more than any other virtue in the fruit of the Spirit? Is that the one? I would hope that that would be the one. It's why I think it's mentioned first. I'm going to invite the music team up now. They can come on up even as I'm talking. So come on up. And I want to pray. But as they're coming up, I want to give you a little time to just pray and reflect on this. I want you to take 
I want you to take this card, and I don't think we do enough, we don't have enough space in our day for this, and I know we're going a little longer today, but I just want you to take this card, and I want you to pause and pray about God helping you to be more loving to the people on this list. I want you to pray, and I want you to pray this way, knowing this, that did you know that God gives the same grace and love to all the people that you wrote down as he gave to you? Do you know that he's, I know in your prayers they look a little different, right? You go, God, I want you to show that person truth. I want you to show them that you're, they're wrong. No, I, God gives them the same grace. He's just as patient with them as they, again, you don't want to hear other people's prayers about you, right? God gives them the same grace in Christ often. Some of them might not be believers, but he gives and offers through Jesus the same amount of grace and invitation to redemption and salvation that he did for you. Your role then is to simply obey and say, you know what, God? I want to ask you right now, there's a million reasons where I struggle with these people, but I want to ask you right now, would you help me love them in an action-based way? Because friends, the Bible doesn't give us another option. There is no other option in the scriptures but to do anything than love others. Even, even if there's an enemy on your list, Jesus said you have to love them. So let's, let me pray for us, and we're just going to take a moment to reflect silently. Let's pray. Father, I pray that even in the next two or three minutes that we just pause, we have maybe four names on this list, maybe more in our hearts of people that we really struggle with. And I'm praying now that you would help us, God. Help us to love them more effectively and faithfully. As we just sit quietly before you now, would you show us the overwhelming love that you have for us in Christ that we would want nothing more than just to show that to the world around us. How do you want to be remembered? Being faithful, that's a good thing. Being hopeful, that's a great thing. But being loving... That's the best thing, the greatest thing. And some of us will take a lot more work. It's a lot of work to get the bed bugs out. It's a long process in our hearts, but it's a worthy process. I want to leave you with this from Romans 13, 8 through 10. It says this, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Be the church that goes and loves well. Have a blessed day. Go in peace. You are